Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Last week on Fill in the Blanks, we're talking to the best of the best. And this is something that really saves lives. There is no such thing as deceptive body language. We're learning to see what somebody's feeling on the inside by looking at the outside. One of the first things you're going to look for is the differences in comfort and discomfort. And when you see someone going from comfort to discomfort, they'll start doing little things like this with their hand. It seems like we don't value critical thinking as much as we used to. There is so much media coming at people and they're being informed how to think so often. Social media for me has made a big mess of America. I think it's the most dangerous time we've lived in. Welcome back to part two of using body language and nonverbal cues to get to the truth. You know, Mark, what you were saying earlier, I think is something people need to get is what you were talking about, tucking the chin in and going into closed body position is a very primal response. I just adopted two pups and when they first came in, you know, they were pretty skittish and in about a week they were willing to roll over on their back, all four paws in the air, expose their soft underbelly and stuff. At that point, I knew, okay, these dogs are comfortable here. They're at home. They're exposing their soft underbellies and their necks and stuff. And I said, okay, these dogs have found their forever home. They're happy here now. And people don't understand. Your body is going to respond. You can't control all the physiological responses. Something's going to give you away if you're feeling threatened. And you can't monitor all those things at one time. It's just impossible. And I thought those were such great examples you gave. So when people think, you know, I can study all this up and then I can be a good liar. Well, you might be a better liar, but nobody can control everything all the time, right? Well, you know, I've I've been studying this instinctual response for a long, long time. And I did go and take a look at some Japanese monks who had trained themselves that under an ice cold waterfall, their temperature would not reduce. They wouldn't start shivering, essentially. And so this was an amazing thing because it's like, okay, so these people can control their instinct. Well, here's the thing. You couldn't surprise them. If you if you run up behind them and chuck an ice cold bu- bucket of water over them, they start to shiver. If they knew that the trigger was coming, they could prepare. But if they don't know the trigger's coming, then they can't prepare and they're in the same sea as the rest of us. And that's what happens under stress and pressure. If you can put somebody on the right stress and pressure, they're not ready for it. Their body will dissemble and they'll start informing you of what's really going on. Greg, Greg, you had something to say. Yeah, yeah, there are two points. You talk about soft white underbelly in your dog. But humans are the only creatures that walk around with it exposed. And so we need to create exoskeletons with our elbows and we're panicked and those kinds of things more than any other creature. And the second one I would say is if you know body language, it's not always a plus. I did a History Channel special back before Abu Greg broke where we took people in and interrogated them. And the way I broke one of the young women there was 
I educated her what I was looking for. And every time she would do it, I would say, and there you go, you're lying again. Oh, and there you go, you're lying again. Oh, and there you go, you're lying again. And she just finally said, okay, I can't hide that, so I'll give up. Yeah, you just make them self-conscious about it at that point. And it magnifies because all that fight or flight then comes to the surface again and stuff starts leaking. And you're watching for all that and you're pointing out that fidget with the fingers, that adapter, or that her illustrators are out of sync with her, with her sentence and they can't hide it anymore. And yeah. that's the one thing to look for. You could teach a whole body language course on just is that person hiding or protecting arteries or belly? And that could be just a one, if I had to give a one sentence description of this is how you read a person and it was an emergency, that would be it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, exactly that, Chase. I pretty much designed all of my work on trust and credibility around the idea that we're upright hominids and we, we're descendant from ground-dwelling mammals. If you think Darwin is correct, we're descendant from ground-dwelling mammals that stood up on the plains of Africa, didn't take a day or so, took millions of years, and those upright hominids were now exposing their belly because there was an advantage to be able to see distance over the plains. I could see way ahead of time if a predator was coming or if a potential mate was coming or there might be food over there i win an advantage there's now a disadvantage i'm not protected around that belly area so now a lot of my thought has to go to am i safe around here uh, do i want to let people know that i'm open i'm unarmed and i'm unprotected around there so a lot of our behavior goes right back at, at least uh, five and a half million years, in my view. So it's old, old behavior. You can't stop it. You can countermeasure it. But even then, if I surprise you, you know, your chances are very, very low of being able to be deceitful if I can surprise you with the stress and pressure. So if I would add one thing to that, what I always say is our, our systems are really primitive. And Scott, you'll have a, an answer to this one over the amygdala. Our, our brains are designed to find threat and then to respond to that threat. And it doesn't matter, and I'll just say it the way I would usually say it, it doesn't matter if it's a tiger chewing your ass or your wife chewing your ass, you're gonna respond the same way. You're going to ramp up and you're gonna have all that adrenaline flow and you're gonna do something. And your thinking brain is going to turn off and you're gonna respond. That's why we say stupid things to people we love when we're in, a, in that kind of argument because that brain is primitive and it's taking over. So in an interrogation situation, you can create and come up with questions and, and design your questions to um, elicit that behavior. And once you see that behavior, as they start to protect them, them, themselves as a person, as a human, then they start protecting themselves, not just physically, but emotionally, and what have I said, and, and them in their social, uh, how they look socially. So it's important to, to create questions and create your questioning or form your questioning around things that are gonna pop off their fight or flight, get them, a little, get them fired up and start, start moving around. Yeah, and people don't realize we only have one arousal system. It's the same whether we're at the football game and excited for our team or we're threatened in a back alley or we're tense and stressed under interrogation. We've got this one arousal system, and it's going to react when it's triggered. And we just don't flip it on and off. It flips itself on and off when our mind is telling us what it's telling us. That brings me to a question for you, Mark, because we talk about how we spot people if they're lying, trying to pull the wool over our eyes. But one of the things that all of y'all attend to, and Mark, you in particular, is telling people what they can do to put their best foot forward, how to 
present with the most confidence and the most credibility whenever they're presenting themselves in a social situation or a professional situation. What are some tips that people can take away that can give them the confidence to build their credibility, project the confidence, increase their persuasiveness in their communications when they're putting themselves out there? Yeah, so let me give you my number one, and I, I basically built my career in this, around this, which is the biggest indicator, the biggest stimulus for another human being, that you are credible and you can be trusted, because that happens in their head immediately. Immediately as you, as you approach them, they're in their head going, how good is this person, do I think, for me? Do I think they're going to be helpful to me? Are they a friend? Are they a threat, a predator? Are they a potential mate for me? And if they're none of those three, I'm indifferent to them. They don't really count for me at all. The biggest trigger for friend is open palm gestures at exactly navel height. Just open palm gestures, no tools, no weapons, nothing in my hands and exposing that belly area right at navel height. It even changes your tone of voice. You'll notice when I place my hands here, the tone of voice changes. You'll notice if I bring my hands up to chest height, which actually instantly pushes your heart rate and your breathing rate up, just because of the way the body's built it, the heart has to go harder to push the blood against gravity. You'll hear a slight intonation change to me. As I drop my hands down here, you get a very different intonation change. And that's not anything I'm putting on. My body naturally does that. So just open palm gestures, navel height. It's great for trust and credibility. Yeah, it's astounding. I talked before about primal and tucking in your chin and going into closed body position. That's read the same way with animals, right? You approach a dog that can be threatened if you go at him like this, but if you go open palms down, then the dog doesn't see you as a threat near as much as he would in any other posture you can present because that's not a posture from which you can mount an attack. So yeah. even that is a primal sort of communication. Well, especially with dogs, because dogs grew up around us. I mean, literally, they, are, they evolved, they were domesticated with us. So we share, um, we share limbic resonance. That's why we're around dogs. And just like you and, and Scott here and Greg and Chase, we all have dogs. And, uh, and my guess is all of us at times go, God, that dog's really kind of human. Like, that's like a real human being. Biologically, it's nothing like us at all. Exactly. Nothing like us whatsoever. The genetic difference is so huge in reality. But the limbic brain is very, very simple, uh, very similar. It has a social mammalian brain that grew up alongside us. So the triggers are really similar. And so we tend to call them out as human beings and go, they're really human. I'm sure dogs look at us and go, I think that's a dog. That's a dog just like me. I'm sure they don't think we're human. I'm sure they think we're kind of these odd, upright dogs in reality. I yeah, think one of the important so. things that we, should, that we should cover is how your brain gathers that information and that we're seeing in, in open palm gestures and, and the behavior we're seeing in people. We've got three parts of the brain that we usually, that we always deal with when we're gathering information. You have the fusiform gyrus that's right in here and it's about a quarter inch in. And that's what collects all the little things you see in somebody's body language and, and from situationally as well, not just the little movements they make in the corners of their eyes and their way their shoulders might move. And then you have all that collects the little things. Then you have the mid temporal gyrus that's a little bit up, up this way. 
And that collects all the big moves, all the big body language moves. And then you, these two things, as they collect this information, send it back to a thing called the locus ceruleus. I know this is horrifically boring, but I think it's important we should go over it. So it sends it back to the locus ceruleus, and that's what gives you the gut feeling or the most powerful thing in the world, the women's intuition, because it starts sorting through this information and starts comparing it to everything you've ever dealt with before in your life or everything it's ever seen in other people that, that you've ever dealt with in every situation. That's why sometimes you'll bring someone home from the, you know, an old army buddy or someone from college or high school and you'll say, honey, this guy is my buddy from high school and, and you're going to love him. And he's going to come over Saturday. We'll eat and watch a movie. So you all cook and eat and your wife loves him and he's the nicest guy in the world. You guys had the best time. And by the time it's over, you're nice. Your wife's been really nice to him up to this point. No sooner does it, as, as you're hugging the guy, oh man, it's good seeing you again, Phil, or whatever his name is, you know, and then you'd send him out the door. And the next thing you know, your wife turns to you. No sooner does the door shut than she looks at you and says, don't you ever bring that back in this house again. Do you understand me? And you say, well, what's wrong with him? He's one of my best friends ever. And she says, I don't know. There's something not right about him. That's because her locus ceruleus hasn't quite yet put that information together and given it to her. It'll come to her in the shower or when she's driving or something she's doing all the time. Her brain's just sitting there and her body's doing something. But that's where that information is gathered. And that's where that, that female uh, woman's intuition comes from. And we and as men, we get a gut feeling. That's I think that's an important part of, of what we're talking about, the neurological aspect of it. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yep. Yep. And what's fascinating is that that's, that mammalian brain that's down there processing this stuff is incapable of human language. So it can't send us a text message and say, well, the blink rate went up. He started doing this. He covered his groin when he was talking about his credit score or whatever. But it, it's an emotion communicator. So the gut feeling cannot come through in English because it's been doing that for so right, long. Right. And when it gets, gets a trust and credibility, if there's one thing that fear makes our bodies do is it, it speeds them up. If you look how fast a chihuahua moves when there's a sound in the house versus how fast a Rottweiler moves in response, the, the more scared animal moves quicker. So even if we're with somebody and we're start moving quicker, we're blinking faster, our hands are moving faster, that's sending that subconscious signal, just exactly what Scott was talking about, that maybe we shouldn't be trusted, that maybe, I, maybe I'm a little bit less trustworthy. So if anyone's trying to build trust or credibility, this truth pain thing is, is absolutely fantastic. And I would do the exercise of never move faster than if you were standing in a swimming pool. And make that your go-to if you're in sales or speaking to somebody. Talk more about that. Talk more about what you mean. So since we're already broadcasting these signals out, if, if speed tells our subconscious that there's a fearful animal there that's, that may not be truthful or may not be communicating truthfully because it's scared, the slower we move, the more fluid and natural our body moves. So there's no jerky, rapid movements we're not sending those signals to that animal part of our brain that's processing all of that information to determine, should I trust this person or not? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On Oops! The Podcast, join me, comedian Giulio Gallerati, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant, Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. I think we're all products of our learning history, so I think we get into certain patterns. And you know, I've always said everybody has a way of being in the world. You know, some people come into a room like a house of fire. You know, they just got to kind of be the center of attention, like a whirlwind. And other people come in like a cool breeze that just kind of go along the wall and. Everybody has a way of being in the world, and maybe it varies from situation to situation, but it's certainly within a range for that person. And I had an alcoholic father growing up, and very early on, you get to be self-reliant because you just learn. You have to depend on yourself because you don't know whether he's going to be there or not, and if he's going to be sober or drunk. So you just learn, I got to count on myself. And... So I think at a very early age, and then I passed this on to my two boys, that it was very important to be situationally aware. I can remember talking to them about, even when you come into a restaurant, even to this day, one of the first things I do is I come in, I sit down, try to find a gunfighter's chair where my back's against the wall, and then I scan the room and try to find the craziest some bitch in there. And, you know, it's like, if there's going to be trouble, it's going to be over here with this guy. <laughs> right. Really, I scan the room and see if there's danger in the room, it's probably here or probably there. And, you know, I always hear people say, oh, you can tell, watch their eyes. I watch people's hands. I watch people's hands. I've never seen anybody stab somebody with their eyes. I watch people's hands. And just from the time I was 12 or 14 years old, I've always been where I scan and I'm situationally aware. And then I taught my boys to be situationally aware. My son Jordan just got off tour. He opened up for the Jonas Brothers. They did like 100 dates, like 75 in the U.S. and then went to Europe. And I went to some of his shows. There's like 25,000 people in American Airlines Arena and he's on stage up there, and he's got security around him getting him in and out because they're just going insane. I mean, it scares me to death. And I ask him, how are you doing with situational awareness? And I was glad to hear him say, you know, I do scan the crowd and see if anybody's like really out of control. And we have exit corridors and ways out because I look at what happened in Paris. At the concert, they shot the place up and stuff. That's why I say you guys have never been more relevant than you are today. I think the world is, to a degree, very unstable right now, and people should be situationally aware and scan their environment when they're in a crowd, which we're not in much right now because of the pandemic. But I think these things that we're talking about have relevance at many different levels right now. And I just think people need to be tuned into these kind of things. 
I agree. I agree. That's like when I when I train entertainers, that's one of the things that I train what to look for. When someone's uh, is someone's walking up to them, are they nervous because this person is famous? Are they nervous because they're getting ready to do something? What is the nervousness you're seeing? There's several different kinds you'll you'll get a look at. Are they if, if I'm talking to uh, some uh, special ops guys, we're talking about them being an outpost somewhere, or being at, at somewhere. Is the person walking up to you the same thing? Are they nervous because they've never met an American? Are they nervous because they are going to run up and touch you and run off because that's a game that some of them play that to touch an American and get away with it? Or are they going to walk up and they've got you know three pounds of C four on? They're going right. to blow everybody up. What kind of what type of nervousness are you seeing? So that's I, I agree with you. that's valid, especially these days, especially these days in public. Well, I think your instinct to look for hands and look for sudden jerky movement is the most powerful of all those things. Shoulders and hands are how people do injury. And if you go into hostage rescue situations, if you're ever in the situation, they put your hands on your head and a gun in your face and walk you out the door. They're not worried about anything else but those hands. And if a person's going to lift their foot, they have to move a shoulder. If they're going to use their hand, they have to move a shoulder. Pay attention to the person. Like you said, their eyes, people shift their eyes in their head. The whole eye movement thing, while I think that NLP got it wrong, they were headed down a good path. People, when they're recalling information, move their eyes around their head. That's not shifty or dangerous. It's just people thinking. And there are times when you need to be careful with that. Like if a person's making eye contact with the door and then back to a spot, yeah, you should be careful. But I think situational awareness teaches you that sometimes what you think is abnormal is just a, a, a tick. And you see it all the time on your show. But I think when you're in crowds, I mean, when we get back to being in crowds, yeah. what you want to be looking out for is patterns that don't fit in with the bigger pattern that's there. When people are in crowds, they, they have limbic resonance, they move as one, you get a sea of people moving in a certain way, and your brain is able to see the patterns that don't fit in. Now, if there's a pattern that doesn't fit in, does that mean that somebody is, is bad or no, they could be ill? They could be in need of your of, of help, uh, but certainly the brain is able to go, well, this is notable that that individual or that small group, group over there are not moving in the same rhythm, the same cadence, the same volume of space as those others. There might be something of interest happening there. And so you start your critical thinking process or... If you are in a place where you don't have much agency, you've not got a lot of power, you're maybe at risk, you get out. Just leave. You're looking get for both ends of, of the bell curve. Yes. For, for crowds. Abnormal. Either way. Yeah. And look, if it's a false positive, right. no problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. But if you miss it, then you're in serious trouble. I would rather have a false positive than miss something that I should have seen. And, and yeah. You get one chance. You get one chance for that mistake. You've got yeah. to watch out with individuals, however, maybe some groups that they don't call you on the on that problem of the false positive. You know, if I'm an individual and 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 you're suspicious of me, and I say things like, "Yeah, but come on, be nice, be kind to me," just like you're taking it a bit too far. I'm fine. Be nice. Be kind. I'm trying to put social pressure on you right now to stop your instinct. Your instinct is saying, get out of this situation with Mark. There's something odd here. Somebody who's trying to manipulate you will know that if they put social pressure on you, 
it might calm down your instinct or it might be enough that you ignore your instinct. So watch out for people who say, just just be nice. I'm a good person. Be nice. Be kind. That's that's often manipulation. Back to that yeah, resume statement. That happens yeah. more than people realize. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Manipulators yeah. especially. I mean, the psychopaths that, that Scott's so fond of talking about, those people are really good at looking glossy, reflecting back into your face what you need to see and making you feel really good about yourself while you're talking to them. And people fall for that all the time. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think is very, very powerful that we haven't talked about is the power of language. Scott, you mentioned internal dialogue. And I think that what we say to ourselves is so powerful in what our experience is in life in general and in a given situation. And I see people a lot catastrophize in their language. You'll hear them say, oh, I just had a horrible day, or he was horrible to me, or this was a terrible situation. This is the worst thing that ever happened in the world. And I'm thinking, you know what? I've walked through the burn unit at Parkland in the children's wing where seven-year-old girl has full death burns over 80% of her body. That's horrible. The fact that somebody was rude to you at Walmart, that's not horrible. That's annoying. <laughs> that's not horrible. But you hear people say, oh, it was just horrible. She can, it was just horrible. And when you say that to yourself, one or two things are going to happen. You're going to say it so much that you attenuate and don't react. Or you're going to respond as though, oh, my God, this was really horrible. And then when something does happen that's horrible, you're going to go completely off the grid. And I think the language, the things that we say to ourselves, when we lie not to other people but to ourselves, we can really give ourselves a bad message and put ourselves in fight or flight, put ourselves in a funk, put ourselves in a situation when we haven't told ourselves the truth at all. Self, I think self-pity is the number one poison for people. I worked, I worked Sear, I worked Green Beret School, that kind of stuff. You could always tell the guy who self-pitied would fail, always. It's the guys who would say, yeah, this sucks, but so what, and keep moving. And they never told themselves how bad it sucked. They would just wait, they would just gut up and move on. Self-pity destroys people. I had a mentor who once told me when I was about 19, and I had uh, I grew up with a little social anxiety, and he said if somebody else talked to you the way that you talk to yourself, you would knock their teeth out. Yeah, and that changed me instantly when I heard that. Yeah, what a good way to put it. Beautiful way to put it. So yeah, I, I look a good at the self. I look at the self-talk in this way, and that I'm always interested around how we self-talk about other people. And use the word is. So, you know, Dr. Phil is X. Scott is this. It's, it's They definitely are. There is no equivocation. It's just I've got them. I know who that person is. And what I like to do in my self-talk is add the word maybe to the end of that. So, you know, that person I see over there is maybe. And that causes, again, this initiation of critical thinking where I go, let me investigate now what for me seemed certain about my assumption about this person. You know, so just adding perhaps, maybe, or the idea of yet, 
to, to the self-talk gives you more room to explore that there might be more possibilities for you and other people. Well, here's a question that I think would put a button on this for people. And I'm interested in how you guys see this. And that is, you know, we have terms that are thrown around to the point of losing their meaning. Self-esteem, self-image, self-concept. And when we talk about people that communicate non-verbally and verbally about who they really are and how truthful and credible and all they are, I'm really curious how you guys think they come to believe themselves who they really are, how they form their self-concept, how they form their self-image, how people come to believe what they believe about themselves, how they form that self-concept, that self-image. What do you think that process is? I, I think it comes from uh, the biblical, as a man thinketh, so is he. And I think when people get those ideas in their head, from their, be it from their parents or from us, from socially about what kind of person they are, they'll start repeating those things. And I think when you, when you hear something and you repeat enough to yourself, I'm this kind of person or I'm that person, then you become that person, I would think. In, in, my, in my life, I've been a couple of different things. I've been a record producer and I'm a, a trainer and a body language expert, all those at the same times. But I would, I would be telling myself, I would, as, as a man thinking, so is he, I would be thinking about me being those things. And I think, and overall, people believe those things they're told, like Chase was talking about earlier. Once you start believing those things, you start telling yourself that. Um, it was going back to the discussion we had earlier. And once you do that, you start building that person that you project out to everyone else. And I think a lot of that is where we, where do I look for evidence of who I am? What, is, what are my sources of evidence? And, I've, and I, I get those things based on how I grew up, how my parents molded me. And if I, if I had abusive parents, I needed to look for negative evidence to keep myself safe. And I'm growing up looking for to define me based on that kind of evidence. So it's an evidence search. And the second part is no matter who it is, they're on a hero's journey. All of us, we're the hero of our story. I don't remember the guy's name, Scott. Kafka. 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 So what? where am I in my hero's journey? And so now I'm, I've got to pick villains. I have to pick the, the people that I'm friends with. So what is the evidence that I have got here? And then once you've got that pattern, that habitual pattern of searching for evidence from one place, if I'm just going to sort my, if I'm an author and I go to Amazon and I sort by lowest ranking review first, and that's how I find evidence, that's my self-concept. Greg? Yeah, for me, it's even a little more mechanical. So we talked earlier about social media and that kind of thing. I I use this saying all the time with people whose parents tell them that they're beautiful and smart and pretty and all that kind of stuff. I always say you've been pounded so full of sunshine, you think you're a flashlight. And that's just the way people are. Their brains get to a point they expect to be treated that way. Then they go into social media. And this is the whole Maslow thing. And you know, if you think of Maslow very simply, you set an alpha, you set a person who is at the top. I don't mean the self-actualization piece. No, I mean within any social group. And everybody tries to emulate them. It's a reason basic training turns people like me into a soldier. 
It's a reason you set an alpha and then people try to live up to that. If you move into an organization where you're the alpha or the superior and everybody around you worships you, then quickly you get into that kind of space where you can make yourself anything that you want to be. You can look at cloistered environments with people like Jim Jones. That's exactly how that kind of thing happened. You can look at places like Charles Manson. As long as everybody's giving you the inputs that you want and you don't want outside input, you can get a really skewed vision of who you really are. And I think that's the social media magic today. So for me, the skewed vision is the important thing because we're getting our self-perception through a fairground mirror, a fun mirror, essentially. And part of that mirror is internal and part of it is a real thing outside. And I think we have to keep checking that fairground mirror. Is it a really fat mirror or is it a really skinny mirror? Like what is the distortion that's going on? And for me, again, the way to check it is always go, well, what if? What if that mirror were accurate? I'm not saying it is accurate, but what if that feedback that person's giving me right now, what if that is accurate? What would I want to do about that? And that's that's always you just checking in. What if that voice in my head, that self-criticism, what if it's accurate? What if it's accurate? What would I want to do about that? It's, again, just trying to spend some time applying critical thinking, not only to how you're talking about yourself, but how the rest of the world seems to be talking about you. Because I guarantee it's all a distortion. It's all a fairground mirror, but some of it could be useful. And so what if it were useful? What would you want to do about that? And maybe you ask the question, what if this were a lie? What would I want to do if this, this piece of information coming to me is a, is a lie? Check it out, think about it, and then decide what you want to do with that vision of yourself. That's the way I'd think about it. And where's the payoff that the person getting from that? I think to wrap that would be, again, to, to bring up Kafka, was be every man is necessarily the hero of his own story. That's necessarily the hero. So he must be the hero of his own story. So, so his self, uh, you know, looking at himself, he's got to be the guy in charge or she's got to be the, the, the woman in charge. So it's necessarily the hero of, of his own story. Yeah, I think you're right. I think everybody's got a star in their own life. That's for sure. If they don't, who is, right? Well, what do you think, Dr. Phil? Well, I have a little bit different take. It ends up in the same place. And this is why I tell parents not to be so indulgent with their children. It's the way I think I've formed my self-image, and I think it's the same way that I form opinions about other people. If I've got somebody that works in the office that shows up every day, 10 minutes early, turns the lights on, has the coffee going, has everything organized, hasn't missed a day in 15 years, then I attribute to that person, based on my observations, those traits that this person is reliable, dependable, organized, buttoned up. I make those attributions based on my observations of that person's conduct and behavior. And I think I make my own self-attributions the same way. I watch what I do and based on what I master in my environment or fail to, I make attributions to myself based on those observations. Like I can't add two and two and get five every time. So I have attributed to myself that I am not good at math. 
unless you put a dollar sign in front of it. And then all of a sudden, those numbers get real clear. <laughs> but I'm not good at math, which is why I'm in a talking profession, I guess. I listen to myself. But yet I can read as fast as you can turn the page and comprehend and retain really well. So I've attributed that to myself. I've been in situations where I've seen myself work the problem and get through it. So I attribute to myself, I can stay hooked up to something and generally work it out and come up with a solution. So I think we all have a personal truth. That's what we believe about ourselves when nobody else is looking and nobody else is listening. And I think that's critically important because I think we generate the results in life we believe we deserve. And I had a damaged personal truth when I was growing up because we were really poor and I had a dysfunctional family and I felt like a second-class citizen and I had to repair that in order to not generate results that would be second-class. But I think I observed what I did and based on that, I made certain attributions to myself about certain competencies and that defined my self-image and self-worth which then drove my internal dialogue of telling myself what I could do and not do. And so I think if you indulge a child and you don't let them master their universe and watch themselves overcome that, you know, the kid that walks into school the first day of kindergarten or first grade by themselves, opens the door, goes in there, does it and comes back out and gets in the car, I think observes themselves doing something that the kid whose mother carries them in sets them down in the chair, I think that child is cheated out of walking into that giant-looking building and saying, hey, I did that. There was a little five-year-old girl that lived next door to us. My mother, she was talking to her one day, and she came over and said, so how are you today? And she said, I can zip, button, and tie. And my mother just died laughing. That little girl could zip, button, and tie. And she had observed herself doing that. She could do it. She attributed it to herself. That was part of her image. And I've never forgotten that. She observed herself doing that. I think that's how, at least in my symbol system, I think that's how I formed my self-image. But do you think we short-circuit that with this whole social media where we get told we're smart, we're brilliant, we're this, we're that, without having to actually deliver any product? Well, and it's also the flip side because you've got haters on there. For sure. So if you believe the haters who say, why don't you shut up, you bald-headed hillbilly? If, you, if I listen to <laughs> <right> them, <laughs> then I, I wouldn't get up in the morning and leave the house. I saw one the other day that said, I would rather have Dr. Pepper operate on my than take advice from Dr. <laughs> Phil. <laughs> I I we that, one down. That, that one was pretty good. <laughs> I would like to see that operation. Oh. <laughs> we get our own hate mail. We all have titles from our Here, audience. Here's the here's the good thing about our hate mail. I, here's what I found out about these guys I didn't know. I found out Greg is a devil worshiper. Uh, obviously, I'm a Nazi. I'm a Nazi. Oh, you're the I'm Nazi. Nazi. Okay, yeah. Mark's the devil worshiper. Chase, what were you? I'm getting paid off by the Biden campaign. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. And the McCanns are paying me. Yeah. So we're all, we're all, I learned a whole lot about our, about us just from our, the people who comment about what kind, what kind of lives we really lead. 
Fortunately, I've never had the need to be loved by strangers. So it's just, same, same. I know either. <laughs> we're in the wrong profession for that. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We're hated by a lot of people, but not loved by a lot. You know, you know, Eddie Murphy strangers. said that to uh, some talk show host, and he says, "If you read all those good reviews for when you do a movie or when you're you're acting, and then you believe them and they make you feel good, then the bad ones become just as powerful." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Joe Rogan says about his comments when he was talking to Bill Burr, he said, Joe, Bill Burr said something about the comments and Joe said, don't go in there. So yeah, exactly. Said, don't go in there. It's ugly. It's so, ugly. Yeah, it gets ugly quick. Well, Joe Rogan is my son Jay's best friend and a good friend of mine. And yeah, he's not a believer in reading all that stuff. But I think that you got to make up your mind about who you are. And when I was in high school, I went through sophomore, junior, and senior year at Shawnee Mission North in Kansas City, and we never lost a game. We were undefeated for three years, and our coach told us every day, don't you believe what you're reading in the newspaper because you ain't that good. You're not that good. You're not that good. And I guess so when I was 15, 16, and 17, I got a lesson. Don't believe the press. Just work hard, keep your head down, and stay focused. And that was yeah. a good lesson to get at a very young age. Nice and grounding. Yeah. I think people need to think about how they actually form their self-image. And then that's what they project with all this body language and word choices and everything that they put out. So, well, guys, I could talk to you guys for another five hours, um, and hopefully you'll be willing to do this again sometime. We'd yes. love to. Yeah. yeah. And yes. uh, hopefully Thank you. you'll let Thank me you. be a guest with you guys sometime. Anytime you're ready. Yeah. We'll talk. We'll talk about it. We'll get back to you. I'll have somebody call you. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have, our, we'll have our Lindy call you. We'll have, we have a Lindy. We're going to have her call you. Well, you just pick the time and day and write it down in ink because I'll be there. Lovely. All right. Well, I'll let, you know. I'll let you know. Yeah, it'd be great to have you. It'd be great to have you. That'll be yeah. great. I'm continuing to track you guys on the internet, and I'm going to put links to all four of you on drphil.com, on my Facebook, on Fill in the Blanks podcast page, and everywhere else I can plaster it for everybody to find you guys. And listen, to the listeners and viewers, these are very intelligent guys. They know a lot of big words, but they do their best not to use them. They talk in plain language that is interesting things that you can use at work, at home, with your family, in parenting, in every possible way that you can imagine. This is very much enriching to your life. And I've been studying communication, interrogation, deception, detection, everything for 30 years and I learn something every time I get online and listen to these guys after 30 years I learn something every time I tune into them so I'm sure everybody else out there will as well I highly recommend you make them part of your online experience and they've got great books to read I can't say enough about how much they'll enrich your life and your communication so Guys, thank you so much for being part of thank you. Fill in the Blanks. And I hope Pleasure. to see you on the show again very soon as we try to crack another interesting case. 
Thanks, Dr. Uh, Phil. Thank Thanks. You so much. We really what a pleasure. That. Thank you. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank we'll talk so to much. you soon. Thanks. So long. Good to All see right. you. Bye. See you today. All right. Bye.